getting in, industry input, sector input is is critical. Uh, along with doing jurisdictional reviews and scans of what's happening out there is is right. also important. We've got a bunch of venues that either we go to or we invite others, but seeking input to make sure that we've got that lens and that view of what's happening, Francis, is is important. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 086, number 86 of the Flux Capacitor. This episode was recorded in early November 2023 on Zoom. My guest today is... Harney Panisar, uh, Chief Operating Officer from the Ontario Energy Board. Harney joined me for a conversation about the changing world of the energy regulator. We talk about the modernization of the Ontario Energy Board, their increased use of delegated decision-making, the importance of speed in decisions, and the move to more customer-centric models. He also shares perspectives on regulation as we move into a net-zero paradigm, drawing from his experience at the OEB, at Hydro One, and from his academic perch. We end the conversation with a seemingly timeless book recommendation for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Harneet Panazar. I'm delighted that you were able to finally join the podcast. I've been talking about this, I think, for the past year. Uh, we've been chatting about the podcast. We keep bumping into each other uh, at a variety of different uh, meetings and events, and we've had many conversations about uh, sort of the current state and future of the industry. So it's great to have you on the podcast. So let me start off by saying welcome. Thanks a lot, Francis. I'm uh, delighted to be here. You're right. We've had uh, a ton of conversations over the past few years here. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to record our conversation today and share it with your podcast community. That's fantastic. So, so one of the things that uh, that that I thought were to be particularly interested uh, to 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 talk about is, well, you know, on all of these issues about sort of the current state and the future of of electricity, uh, and and regulation and and all of the related issues, you are able to come at it from a variety of different perspectives. Uh, you're a regulator. You're previously uh, a regulated. Uh, you were with a regulated entity for a while. You're an academic um, in this space, and you're also a customer. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you're bringing lots of different perspectives to the table, which I think is, has always been part of the, the reason why every time we chat about these issues, I always find it interesting because you, you, you do have interesting perspectives on this. But why don't we start off um, with the, uh, the Ontario Energy Board uh, and then just for the listener, maybe a, a little bit about um, a little bit about the OEB, because you're kind of in transition. You're trying to move from the past into a future. So. Why don't you give us the, the 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 short description of like what's the OEB now and what are you trying to become? Sure. So the Ontario Energy Board is the independent economic regulator of Ontario's electricity and natural gas sector. Uh, I think we see oversee one of the most complex energy systems in North America. We've got over sixty uh, local distribution companies. Uh, we've got two natural gas distributors, uh, and we've got 
approximately 800 licensed entities. So fairly complex. Uh, today's OEB is really at the epicenter of the energy transition, and we're taking a leadership position to further Ontario's clean energy advantage. Uh, you're right, we have been on a bit of a journey here, and it's really the motivation for me coming from the regulated uh, to the regulator. Mm -hmm. um, you know, modernizing the regulator was important. And as we go through this energy transition, I think the sector and uh, ratepayers at large will benefit from having a modern regulator uh, being able to help guide this transition. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we've been at this journey now approximately three years. Uh, we've made some significant changes. Uh, some of them are related to our governance structure. Uh, we now have a board in place. Um, how we make decisions has changed. Some of the structures internal to the organizations have changed. Uh, we've built in more performance metrics and standards to help build in predictability around timelines associated with making uh, decisions and turnaround. And we've also focused a lot on getting out to the sector, collaborating and providing regulatory guidance. It's pretty important to us to be with the sector because we need to collaborate as we move forward on uh, the transition we're undergoing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you say... Um... Um, how you make decisions uh, and how decisions are 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 made by by the uh, by the board uh, is is changing or has changed. Sort of what what's it changing from and, and what's it going to? Is this a, a question of greater greater transparency? Is it greater efficiency? Is it kind of all of the above? Or? Yeah. So you know, as we looked at decision making uh, related to adjudicative decision making, on average, we we issue about three hundred decisions a year. Okay. And actually, 80% of those decisions aren't actually issued by a panel of commissioners. Uh, you know, they're issued by my staff who are given delegated decision-making authority by the chief commissioner. Mm -hmm. um, that is a new way to also make decisions. And as I look at other regulators across Canada, um, you know, the benefit of doing that really is that when you're trying to do innovative things, when you're trying to push beyond the norm or the standard approach on how we do things, speed does matter. And mm -hmm. having the ability to make decisions uh, through delegation like that um, helps get information back out to the regulated entities to be able to act much quicker. You know, innovation uh, operates at a different speed than traditional sort of utility planning or utility thinking that needs to maybe, you know, be a little bit longer term. Mm -hmm. um, the people that are helping provide guidance, and we can talk a little bit about that too, around regulatory guidance, are also mm -hmm. then helping uh, in certain cases uh, to help make decisions uh, that are binding uh, by the OEB, mm -hmm. and so is this a is this a change that's that's sort of evolving, or is this something that's been implemented and you've kind of got the new processes in place and and you're running with it, or yeah, kind of where where is it at? So it, it's in uh, full swing. Um, okay. You know, like I said, about eighty percent of the three hundred decisions we eight. Yeah, eighty percent of the three hundred decisions we make have been made uh, through this this form of delegated decision making, mm -hmm. um, and we've also uh, created a an adjudicative dashboard online, so you can actually see uh, you know okay. the metrics that we have to be able to uh, turn around decisions in a timely manner, and uh, we've been. Uh, really performing quite high, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've updated a lot of our performance metrics around the different types of decisions that we need to make. Right. Okay. And then what, uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from the, uh, from the regulated uh, entities? Uh, what's their, what's their assessment of how things, uh, how things have changed? I think it's been helpful for them, especially as they've been trying to navigate sort of what we call the gray area, you know, coming yeah. from the regulated side. Uh, there were often questions I had that I, I needed some answers to um, 
we have something called the IRE process, which is the industrial relations inquiry process. We get about mm -hmm. 300 to 500 inquiries depending on the year, and they vary in complexity. Uh, the mm -hmm. point of that process is to help inform um, uh, people who have questions around, mm -hmm. you know, what does the current regulations allow for? And, you know, what about if we wanted exemptions? Or what about if we wanted to sort of push the edges a bit? What would that look like? Uh, and so our commitment is within 10 days, 90% of those inquiries will be answered. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, three to 500, depending on the year. And they vary in complexity. Um, there's going to be some that we just can't get to because they're either in adjudication yeah. uh, or they're fairly complex. But at the end of the day, speed uh, certainly helps. And being nimble uh, is helpful. When I do speak to other regulators, you know, they are still using panels to make decisions on certain cases. That, mm -hmm. that does take a significant amount of time. Uh, and effort from both the applicant and maybe even interveners if there is that if there is that requirement. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know we want to make sure that we're efficient yet effective in our adjudication. Right. So how much is this new approach informed by um, your experience in your years when you were at Hydro One and were spending uh, probably an inordinate amount of time responding to inquiries from the regulator? Uh, did that did that uh, in, inform um, your desire and and your your team's approach to this? Uh, it certainly has. Like you know, the the reason I I feel so strongly about providing the guidance is that you know when you're looking at risk and in, in innovation, a lot of times innovation doesn't get the adoption it it should get, and part of that is the risk profile is just too high for uh, someone to actually implement some of the stuff. Right. If you're able to get ahead of it and get some certainty or some clarity from the regulator, it then de-risks it partially. You know, <laughs> you've gotten some clarity on some of this. It helps regulated entities. It helps private investors. It helps people that are looking to partner with utilities. It helps a lot of decision makers that are inherently um, trying to figure out the risk that they're navigating in this space. So yes, you know, coming from from the utility side, and I did have the R and D and innovation portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always obviously helpful to get guidance from the regulator. Um, and, and I'll say that it, it wasn't just my experience. You know, we've been getting out with the sector a lot, and we continue to hear that the regulatory guidance is helpful and mm -hmm. that it helps decision making, uh, the speed of it, and also some of the de-risking, which then ultimately would lead to better adoption rates and, and de-risking some of the questions that really don't need to be uh, left as unknowns. Right, right. So it sounds as though this regulatory guidance is something that's done on, on a proactive basis as opposed to reactive. It sounds like what you're describing is a, a regulator that is 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 proactive, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there there's some things that uh, people come up with that they'd like to challenge. But I would say as an organization, we're also looking ahead and mm -hmm. trying to see what is it that the sector is trying to evolve to? Where are they moving and trying to get ahead of it as as much as possible? Uh, and, and, you know, we can talk a little bit more about it, but they're certainly thinking around how the energy markets might be shifting and where mm -hmm. they may, may be going. Um, we're doing a lot of proactive work to try and get ahead of some of that, to look at the art of the possibility, not to look to solution it exactly. Everyone's got swim lanes and how that evolution and that transition might play out. But as a regulator, an economic regulator, we, we have a certain role to play, but um, we're constantly trying to get ahead of uh, current issues or, or, or current directions that the, the market is looking to take. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I always ask people to come on the uh, on the podcast about uh, about their their journey. So, uh, what about your journey? Uh, I always make the joke. 
uh, Harneet, when you were a kid on the playground? Is this what you dreamed of doing when you uh, when you were going to go out into the world? It's uh, funny you ask that. We I just had this conversation with some of my staff today. I think uh, you know, if it were to me up to me solely without influences of my parents, I would I would probably be a police officer. Actually, was what I thought I'd be. Oh really? Okay. Um, but I I come from a long line of engineers. My dad's a civil engineer. Mom's industrial. Brother's mechanical. I'm yeah. electrical. Uh, so engineering was almost a, a bit of a destiny. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, it was, I think, around grade 10, 11, I decided, yeah, I'll, I'll stick to the engineering trade and and, and join it. So that's really uh, was was the main influence was was family. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I took on the engineering uh, profession here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started off in consulting uh, right out of engineering school. I went to University of Toronto, did my electrical engineering degree there. Right. Um, and started off in a consulting company called Stantec, did a bunch of work uh, oh, yeah, traveling sure. around, yeah. mm-hmm. um, mostly in the robotics area, some power uh, system work, and then uh, decided I wanted to be closer to Toronto so I could uh, follow a uh, dream of doing my MBA. And so mm-hmm. when I mm-hmm. needed to do my GMAT, I, I knew that I couldn't be traveling so much. I had to ground myself to even to just do the entrance exam. Right. Um, I finished my, uh, sorry, I joined uh, Hydro One at the time uh, and started off as a load connections engineer, uh, connecting large loads. And at the time, a lot of renewable generation was coming on board. So I took on a few studies to help bring on some of the renewable generation at the time. Okay. Um, moved around that organization quite a lot. And at the same time, started a, a morning MBA at the Rotman School of uh, Management, going to school, waking up four in the morning, going to school uh, seven to nine. Uh, and then heading to the office. Uh, they were long days, uh, but they were well worth it. Mm-hmm. Right. And now you're you continue to be involved in in the academic uh, community, right? You're... That's right. Yeah, I've been uh, teaching. I think I'd say about for the last five six years, we've been I've been teaching uh, mostly focusing on keeping my engineering pencil sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been teaching courses on energy and innovation, uh, and more recently been teaching courses on uh, energy storage and use. Uh, I think it's important to still stay in the academic space. You know, as as the engineering profession uh, evolves, our our bounds aren't necessarily uh, you know human made. Uh, mm-hmm. guidelines only or or generally accepted principles or based on on precedence. Uh, the practice itself is based on the the laws of nature that govern the bounds and mm-hmm. the second order differential equations that that govern it. So staying in the academic sphere, I think lets me dabble in in spaces that aren't currently confined by, you know, current policy or current thinking or even cross-border and jurisdictions mm-hmm. foundations can be applied all over the world and solve different problems so staying in that academic space uh, I think helps keep keep your mind uh, sort of more open uh, and right. I, I've certainly have received some fantastic feedback from student thinking that has been helpful too mm-hmm. okay you talked a little bit about um, you know regular regulatory guidance that's being provided uh, and that's certainly informed by um, uh, a view of of what the current and future state may be um, of uh, both the the industry uh, and evolving regulatory practices. How do you keep up to date uh, on what the evolving picture of the industry and and the evolution of regulation looks like? What are the sorts of things um, that uh, do you get involved in or do you follow to make sure that uh, you're at least understanding um, where the ball uh, might be going to? 
Yeah. So, you know, getting in industry input, sector input is is critical, uh, along with doing jurisdictional reviews and scans of what's happening out there is, is right. also important. Um, we've got a bunch of venues that either we go to or we invite others, but seeking input to make sure that we've got that lens and that view of what's happening, Francis, is, is important. Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, we completed a uh, policy day for this year. It's an annual event in which we talk about some of the latest thinking around policy, right. uh, our future looking work plan, and really try and seek input on, you know, is what we're working on uh, as re relevant does the scope need to be changed? Do we need further input or refinement in certain areas? And what is the general pulse of, of uh, some of the ideas that we've got? Mm -hmm. We also have policies within the OEB that uh, you know are requiring a bit of a refresh. Last year, we started off prioritizing all of our adjudicative policies. We have about 60 of them. Um, I'd say about 30 of them need to be uh, revisited, uh, looked at, and updated. We went through the process of prioritizing all those adjudicated policies, and we've built out a multi-year work plan, uh, again, with an annual review of, okay, is this the most prudent spend of our time and energy, you know, given what we're dealing with, given the policies that we have now and what we're seeing through applications? Uh, we, we are, we've started uh, the review of our adjudicated policies, which are foundational mm -hmm. as a regulator. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so keeping those relevant has, has been important. Um, we also have also changed how we engage with the sector. Uh, mm -hmm. We launched as part of our modernization, a platform called Engage With Us. Uh, it helps us uh, put out information and updates to the sector, but it also allows people to engage with the OEB and more directly with some of the staff, provide input and get updates uh, specific to areas and topics that are relevant to them. Right. Uh, we have found it very helpful. We've seen more engagement uh, and we do find that as we speak to people, they are more informed of some of the activities that we are doing. Um, and lastly, I'll just say, you know, you and I have met at, at, at airport lounges. We've met uh, <laughs> across Canada, you know, getting out there, not just yeah. in Ontario, but across has been really helpful uh, between myself and the rest of the executive leadership team. You know, we've been getting out with the sector, um, even outside of the Ontario borders, to make sure that uh, we're getting uh, perspective that is leading edge uh, across the world. Mm -hmm. So are you um, are, are you leading edge? across the world or, or are there are and are there specific jurisdictions that you you keep an eye on because because um they they are perhaps um you know further ahead than others yeah so you know when we started our modernization the first thing we do we did was we reviewed what it meant to be a top quartile regulator there were areas that we wanted to focus in on and look at what was the best practices around the world and you mm -hmm. know we couldn't just copy and paste exactly what was happening right. in, in isolation uh, but we looked to adapt what we were seeing and through the last two three years here we've been implementing those changes across the organization mm -hmm. um, you know we have seen a significant amount of success our stakeholders have also told us that they've seen it and they're uh uh, uh, you know, working with us to continuously improve on it. I don't think it's something that you can uh, just claim victory on and 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 stand there. You got to continuously mm -hmm. look at what else is happening and how do we continue to move uh, the needle. You know, I talked about setting our performance standards. Yep. Even though we set the performance standards, let's say two years ago, we have evolved and and uh, improved those performance standards even over the last two years. So continuous improvement mm -hmm. um, is fundamental to staying ahead and being leading edge. Right. Right. One of the things that that you've talked to talked to me about in the past um, is a customer centric models. So, yeah, yeah, comment I, a little bit about that. 
I think as we look at the energy transition, the role of the customer is evolving and they are playing a more important of a role in not only the decisions that they're making for them for themselves, but the implications of their decisions to the overall system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this goes to the fact that consumer choices are growing. You know, we're seeing more and more products, products mm-hmm. that are bought on Amazon, products that are bought at shopping malls, <laughs> car parking lots. Yeah. Uh, you name it, the the demand on the electricity system uh, is, is being influenced heavily by consumers. Mm-hmm. Those consumers in aggregate are then impacting our distribution systems and in impacting the distribution system in aggregate now in volumes, what we used to, uh, you know, call Mickey Watts are now adding up to be actually quite impactful and Mm -hmm. uh, they are starting to impact transmission systems. So the, the customer centric model, I think is so critical because if you're continuing to plan the system like we did traditionally, mm-hmm. which was, you know, I used to be a planner back in the day, you know, looking at uh, housing starts, working with municipalities, the data that we use then is somewhat shifted because what's happening behind the meter is starting to impact us a bit more and more. Uh, and if we, it used to be a bit of a blind spot. We yeah. are seeing advancements in technologies around smart meters and what they're yeah. able to do and what applications that ride on, ride on them are able to do. Um, we need to start utilizing it more. I'll also say that, you know, as important as it is for utilities to have better data on their consumers, I think empowering consumers with their own data is equally important Mm. because it will help them drive their decision making. Uh, As of November 1st, which was the deadline for uh, local distribution companies, uh, both gas and electric, to bring on board uh, Green Button, Mm -hmm. uh, which which is really a standard in which, uh, you know, consumers can access their own data or have third parties access it, other applications that might want to access it. Really empowering good decisions uh, comes down to giving them the data so that they can do that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're proud to say that uh, there's only been a few exemptions uh, and extensions that were given, but uh, a good part of Ontario is now green button compliant and uh, access to information like that for consumers is available. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, that, that change is, is being felt across both consumer side and utility side. Yeah, so the the green button initiative, maybe for the for the listener, uh, was that a a a decision by the government, a, a directive from the government, or was it something that came from the the regulatory? Uh... It it was a ask from the government uh, yeah. that we have that uh, put in um, a little bit of history on green button. It was actually brought forward by a competition that the White House held, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know as that developed, it commercialized, it became a standard. And then uh, our job was to bring together industry uh, to make sure that we get all local distribution companies compliant with it. That meant leading working groups, talking about best practices and getting everyone on board with technology, standardization, terms and conditions, things like that. Um, So it's been uh, a busy, I don't know, about a year and a bit to implement it, but Mm -hmm. uh, we've got us there. And so that's now become uh, some form of, uh, there's some form of regulatory requirement now for the 160 um, uh, distribution companies in Ontario to, to, to have this with the, with some exceptions? It's a requirement for all of them to have yeah. it. Some of the, exam- uh, they're not exemptions, they're really just extensions. Gotcha. Uh, you know, some, some, some challenges on the technology side that are being sorted out, but uh, they will all be compliant with it. It yeah. is a requirement. Right. So yeah, you mentioned um, uh, you know having a, having a, a, a greater understanding uh, of um, what's happening behind the meter uh, from a, from a customer side of things. Do you 
rely upon uh, the uh, regulated companies to provide uh, that insight? Or uh, is there work that's actually being done by the OEB itself to uh, to gain a greater understanding um, of uh, what's happening uh, behind the meter and what's happening with customers? So we rely on the utilities to do prudent planning, and that includes taking in that data to be able to plan for the system. So we yeah. rely on the utilities to do that. We do have a working group associated with regional planning that does look at you know, what are the right inputs? How do you account for things like EVs that are coming on board? How do you actually do some of that load forecasting? So, you know, as as the OEB will help guide some of that conversation, we'll make sure that filing requirements and some of the, uh, the needs for us to be able to test for prudency around, you know, are they building in the right spots? Are they overbuilding? Are the costs right? Um, we will we'll build in some requirements associated with it, but the actual data from a planning perspective uh, would be something that the utilities would act on. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, hearing a bit of a theme here, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, working groups and providing guidance. And uh, it sounds like uh, increasingly uh, you're uh, acting um, more as a convener. Um, is that to to try and lessen lessen the requirement for kind of command and control? It's sounding a, a more like a more of a collegial uh, approach uh, to managing what your brief is in the sector. Yeah, and it, it comes back to my opening remarks about how complex Ontario is, right? Yeah. We, we've got roughly 60 LDCs with uh, a variety of, of you know capabilities in certain areas. And so when we try and put requirements together for the entire province, it's important that we have a good understanding of where everyone's at and then help bring everyone to the same page. So, you know, having working groups from that perspective is helpful. Uh, it's also helpful because, you know, we've got we don't we don't claim to be the, the experts in everything, um, but you know every utility brings a perspective and some expertise along with it. Working collaboratively is the best way to deal with some of this stuff, especially when it's brand new and you're rolling it out for the first time. Yeah, how different is that from the way um, you would interact with uh, the regulator uh, a decade ago when you were a regulated uh, or working with a regulated entity. It, it does sound like this is a pretty significant change from a, uh, a, a almost a, a cultural approach. It was certainly deliberate from a cultural approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, there was, there was a bit of a notion of black box operation to a certain degree. Yeah. And, you know, having access to the OEB, I think is so important for the sector that it is foundational in how we do work. So, Yes, you know, working groups are are critical to get input and also disseminate information back out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I've already described how we've tried to engage better with the sector. Um, it's, it's really the only way we would want to operate. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the uh, reports that, that we had commissioned this year, uh, and we published it earlier this year, it was uh, titled uh, Beyond Bonbright. And the intention of that report was to to uh, look at the the, the fundamentals um, of uh, rate regulation uh, and uh, attempt to describe, oh, there you go. For, for the listener, uh, Arnita is actually holding up the report. Uh, and and how does this, how can this work uh, in a net zero world? So um, do the, the you know, sort of the, 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 the fundamentals of how we 
uh, uh, regulate this sector? Can they work in a in a in a world where uh, net zero is critical, uh, climate change, extreme weather, all of these things uh, are uh, critically important, but didn't even exist in the vernacular in 1961 when that uh, the, the the original book by uh, Bonbright was published. Well, there's been certainly a lot of changes that have taken place since then. And uh, even over the last decade, and, you know, as I look forward, even, you know, the timeframes are shortening and the change is happening. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see a lot of changes. You know, when you look at net zero, this is a global push, right? The yeah. decarbonization push isn't just something that's happening in Ontario or in Canada. Yeah. We're all trying to achieve it. And so that means we're all trying to access the same resources to try and uh, to get us there. Um so the cost of getting us there is is one thing. So you look at the pathways to decarbonization that the IESO put out, mm-hmm. the you know, $300 billion roughly just on G and T, uh, generation transmission. That doesn't even count for the distribution dollars that are going to need to go in. Yeah. Um, it's quite a lot. And you know, we're talking about the mitigation aspect of climate change when you're talking about the net zero aspect. Let's not forget the resiliency side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. We are starting to see impacts of, of uh, extreme weather, um, yeah. low, low frequency, but high impact. And so what do we do with that? You know, at the end of the day, those are still things that utilities need to, to deal with. And so the notion of resiliency was one that we also provide guidance to uh, the Minister of Energy here in Ontario uh, had asked for recommendations around distribution, uh, resiliency, cost mm-hmm. effectiveness and, and readiness. And so we did produce that report um, in the summertime mm-hmm. and those recommendations sit with the minister's office. But, you know, looking at climate change, uh, both from the mitigation aspect and mm-hmm. the resiliency aspect is going to be critical for the energy sector. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, listen, Harneet, one of the things that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, I always end with uh, the same question, and that is uh, I'm always looking for a book recommendation. I'm always interested to get a sense of of the the, the people that come on the podcast, what they're reading. And it it gives me my reading list for the year ahead, uh, but we also assemble it all together in uh, in our Flux Capacitor Book Club. So – uh, and and I know you and I have talked about some of the books that were on the book club list previously, uh, but this is your chance to uh, to add uh, a book to that uh, list. So, what books should we be adding to everybody's reading list? So I, I I looked through the books that you had, and you know I I thought I'll stick away from books around energy or or regulation, um, and kind of go back to the foundational stuff that mm-hmm. I had read back in the past, and I'm I'm reading again to refresh myself. And, you know, as we're going through energy transition, it's important to understand how people make decisions and and how they use judgment perceiving some of that. Yeah. So the book that that book, the book that I'm suggesting is The Psychology of Judgment and Decision Making. It's by Scott, I believe it's pronounced Plaus, P-L-O-U-S. Uh, it was a book that was originally introduced to me when I was uh, at the Robin School of Business by a professor named Glenn White, who taught negotiations. But it's an interesting book because it talks about the theoretical aspect of psychology, but then also brings oh. in psychological experimentation, mm-hmm. but then narrates the books, the book in, with examples that you and I could relate to. Um, it talks about plasticity, framing and anchoring decision making, and how do you influence some of that um, dissonance theory, both pre and post. So uh-huh. it's an interesting foundational book. Um, and you know, the psychology stuff just fascinates me. So that's the book I'm going to leave you with. Wow. Okay. So it's the psychology of judgment and decision-making, uh, by Scott Plouse. 
Um, wow. Okay. So this is a book that's got quite a shelf life. If it's, if you're saying this is something that that's well worth reading today, because I see it was first published in, uh, in 1993. So, right. uh, three, uh, three decades ago and still something that people should be reading today. That's right. Yeah. I think it's a foundational book. Uh, I remember when I read it, it, it blew me away and, uh, you know, uh, professor Glenn White was actually instructing a course and, and use this as the backdrop. And during the classes, he'd be just playing with our heads <laughs> during <laughs> lectures. And uh, it was fascinating to see how he could take us uh, to do and say certain things without us even knowing it. So it, it just fascinated me. Terrific. I, I, I'm I'm going to read it. I'll order it. And the next time we bump into each other in an airplane uh, lounge or uh, during a coffee break at a conference, uh, we can we can have a chat about that book. Sounds good. Harneet, thanks very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to 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 join the call. I, you know, as I said at the beginning, we've we've had a number of these conversations. The only difference is the time we recorded it, so other people can listen in. Thanks, thanks for joining uh, joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Francis. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes. Please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. And let me know what you think of the Flux Capacitor. You can find me on Twitter or X as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca. And it includes links for this episode on the show page. This being episode 86. And while you're there, check out the book club page which provides info on and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor, including Harneet's recommendation, The Psychology of Judgment and Decision-Making by Scott Plouse. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.